Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. I'm John Hewitt, uh, the author of I Compete and the CEO of Loyalty Brands. And I'm going to turn it over to our host, Jonathan bowman Perks. Thank you very much indeed, John. It's really a great honor to have you on the series. You were recommended to me by um, Brian and Gary, two friends of mutual friends of ours, who, who said, you've got to read you've got to read the book by John and you've got to have him on the series. And I did. Um, I, I read a lot of books, John. I'm dyslexic, but I get through about uh, 200 books uh, in every two or three years. And I've really enjoyed yours. It's, it's one of my top 10 favorites. Uh, I, I particularly enjoyed it because it was a, a hell of a story from how you began in life and how you've been driven to, to achieve a huge amount of things, you know, Jackson Hewitt, Liberty Tax, and, and now Loyalty Brands. Um, but also it, it had a lovely bit of humility that ran throughout it, that you weren't trying to big yourself up too much. You also talked about the things you got wrong, but you have had a great, um, a great success. And it, it's therefore useful to all the people listening, because this is in the top 1.5% of global podcasts. It goes out to 185,000 people in 55 countries. And, and they love to hear people's stories and tips and experience. So they don't have to make all the mistakes that you've made, John, but they can learn from the successes you've had. So would you perhaps tell us about what you're doing right now as CEO of Loyalty Brands and what that means? And then we can go back to childhood and do a little bit of 10 minutes of your, of your sort of life story. Over to you, John. Sure. The uh, Loyalty Brands is essentially a franchisor of franchisors. We have 10 franchises that are part of our umbrella. And we do a couple major things for them. We provide, uh, we mentor them and we provide sales to them. I've, I've had the blessing, of, one of my many blessings is I brought in 5,000 franchisees in my career. So we're, we're pretty good at that. And uh, we also have a, a group of people around the country. Those franchisees had over 100,000 employees. So, and we were in, in throughout the United States, throughout Canada. So not only do we know how to bring in franchisees, we know how to build businesses. And there are 100,000 people around the country that know of me and, and have worked with me and are thinking about joining us in any venture that we start. Great. No, that sounds fantastic. And also, um, we'll, we'll now go back to uh, early life, you know, how, how you began out to have the success that you've had, particularly the success around franchisees. What was it and who was it that shaped you, as you through your life journey? There's a number of events that happened to you that, that made you learn very quickly um, through the lessons of life and, and have some great business success. But take, take us back to, to early days, John, and, and the people and the events that shaped you. Yeah, I had, uh, uh, I guess, you know, uh, one of my, one of my uh, top executives, father died about 30 years ago. And I said, well, and suddenly, and I said, do you, do you have any regrets? And she said, I didn't tell him everything, everything that I felt about him. 
And so I had the opportunity, uh, both my parents were alive and I, um, they were separated. I wrote both of them a, a letter about how they had changed my life. You know, how, how I learned integrity and giving from my dad, and loving and et cetera. I wrote them each a long letter. And fortunately, they lived uh, 30 more years. So I got to write them a second letter. But um, yeah, each of my parents, I, I look back and I said, essentially, I started the letter the same way. I know you're proud of me, but this is what I got from you. And so it, it started with great, great parents that set a great example. My philosophy of raising children is introduce them to God and set a great example. And, and both of my parents set a great example for me. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, this one about writing letters. I'm uh, at Christmas going to write a series of letters to both my daughters who are 27 and 28. They don't know it yet, but it's almost like a little book of letters from your father to your daughters. Now, I wish I'd had letters from my father, but my father was killed when I was two and a half. He was a fast jet pilot. Oh. And um, he died saving two other people. And that was why I'm doing this inspired leadership because he inspired leadership in others. And I want to learn from the man I never knew and pass it on to other people. And this is why I've got leaders like you, John, on the series to pass on your wisdom. But it, it's lovely to be able to write letters to my children now while they're at age and I'm still um, well enough. But um, a bit like you, I'm sure I, I um, occasionally you have some health scares. I had one just finishing a few days ago for about a month. And it was really quite a, quite a shock. I'm only 60 and it's like, whoa, you know, uh, we are mortal. And so you don't know when the time's going to come, do you? You really don't. Not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I copied you, or maybe I set an example for you because when I was 51, I had my son and I was afraid that I wouldn't live long enough to experience his, his growing up. And so I started a journal. And uh, talked about uh, not, only, not only what he had my book, my I Compete, but I just started a journal of important sayings and, and beliefs that I had that, that if, in case I got hit by the proverbial bus, that he would know who I was. Mm. Uh, I, I love it, John. I really do. And, and I would do anything to have some time with my late father, which I never did, you know, just because. I had to go and find out about him from other people who'd served with him and the stories they told and things like that. And I had a, a scare recently where my brother Graham, who's 65, got attacked and stabbed by a psychopath who broke into his home and tried to murder him. And there's a court case coming up, but I almost lost him. And then my other brother, David, died two months ago in the space of 10 weeks from cancer. And I lost him too. And so it, it really makes you realize that you've got to, grab every day haven't you john you, you don't know what's coming next you know life is very short and, and uh that's I, i've been so blessed to, to have such a great long life my dad told me when he was this age he says you know if i get hit but if, if i if i die tomorrow john i had the greatest life that just be thankful and uh happy for me and uh, yeah uh, to be healthy and living in in great britain or united states i um, is you're one of the top two percent luckiest people in the world. Yeah, and and I, you know, I'm I'm a people disappoint me because even my own children don't get that. I mean, how can you complain? How can you be upset? How can you be a pessimist? I mean, just to be alive and healthy in one of these great countries is again it puts us in the top two percent of people in the whole universe, and I'm just thankful for that every day. 
Yeah. And am I estimating, if I remember from the book, you're about 72 now. Is that right, John? Uh, exactly right. And, yeah. and I was blessed to have both my parents until way into my 60s. Yeah, no, that, that's that's really special. And, and to have that and to, to, to value it every day. And I think I think when you when you have that attitude, it makes a big difference. So, John, as you've gone through your career life and parents have made a difference, what was it that sort of got you going into you know, Jackson Hewitt, for example? What were the things that drove you to set things up like that? Well, my my dad uh, had five children very quickly. He got out of the army and uh, at the end of World War II and uh, went to had uh, got a, t a tuition paid because the army paid it for Michigan State. I was born in his freshman year. He had uh, three children before he graduated and five children uh, pretty quickly. And uh, he had, both his parents had died and he was poor. Uh, and uh, he, but he was a frustrated entrepreneur. I remember when I was seven, eight, nine years old and, and most people won't remember a, a world without, not only were there not malls, there weren't even shopping centers back in the fifties. There was just the, the individual street stores on, on the, the, in each city, there was no such thing as a shopping center. So a shopping center uh, was put up about a mile from us. And uh, I remember him talking to the neighbor, one of the neighbors sketching a machine, a, a machine that uh, swept parking lots of, of a, a shopping center. And so he was a frustrated entrepreneur. He always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And uh, it, it extended when uh, the way I got involved in tax business is I was at the University of Buffalo and uh, I was, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I knew I was going to, I believed I was going to get wealthy and be rich, but I had no clue how. And I was in school to be a mathematician because I was really good. I'm really good at math. But what does a mathematician do? I don't even know what I would have done. And uh, he tried, he called up H&R Block and now he had, he had uh, begun, I was 20 years old. He began to have enough income that, that he had set money aside. He uh, wanted to buy a, a franchise of H&R Block. And so they said, well, as a matter of fact, we're in your suburb of, of Buffalo, we're gonna open a block store. So you can't buy that. Uh, how about if you have your son take our course, maybe like working for you. So sure enough, I took the course, loved it. And uh, uh, 12 years later, I was the youngest regional director in the country, uh, uh, successful, happy, running 250 stores. And my dad interceded again. He <laughs> said, let's computerize taxes. And so each step of the way, um, it was guided by my, dad, uh, uh, my dad's desire to be an entrepreneur. And I followed in his footsteps. Yeah, it is fascinating, this his aspect of, when you're ahead of the market, the, the computerization of taxes and the fact that it, it really swept things away, you, you were cutting edge on that. Remarkable. And this entrepreneur who has the idea, whether it be sweeping uh, shopping miles, uh, car parks or whatever it is, just to have this idea of, of something that would go on. And that combination, that, that partnership between you and your father was very strong. Um, thinking back to your extensive life and all that you've done, what would be one of your proudest moments, uh, happiest moments, and and what would be uh, what you learned from that? And then what would be a darkest moment in life or work and what you learned from that as well, John? 
I've just, you know, um, when I was a uh, developing Jackson, you know, we grew from uh, essentially zero to a half a billion dollar company. And then we did it again with with loyalty, with uh, Liberty, Liberty Tech grew from zero to half a billion dollar company. One of my uh, directors, founding directors of Jackson knew it after eight or nine years, when we did something momentous, like we got into Walmart. And today Jackson knew it's in 3000 Walmarts. So there's just been so many great things. And she called me up one day and, and I told her the great news, whatever the news was. And she said, wow, she said, you got to be excited. And I said, I live every day excited. I mean, I, Jonathan, I brought in 5,000 franchisees. So that was uh, almost one a day that I'm bringing. And I'm changing people's lives every day. And so uh, it's hard to pinpoint uh, what was any, the greatest uh, achievement. I, th I think that, that uh, having built two companies, well, I guess the greatest achievement is this, that I built, I'm the only person that, that's developed two of the top 100 largest franchise chains in the United States. So there's 98 others that, that developed one of the top 100. I've developed two. And uh, they say third time's a charm. I sold my stock in public company Liberty about um, three years ago. And now we're going for number three. So I, hopefully I'll get to number three before anyone gets to two. So the, the, that's the exciting thing. The, uh, I guess I've had two really dark periods in my career. One is at, at uh, Jackson Hewitt when uh, the IRS essentially, it would take me the whole hour to explain what they changed in one season. They made a mistake and they over they overheld uh, our, our customers' tax returns and wouldn't send them till, till 10 weeks later. And it almost destroyed us and we almost went bankrupt. And it caused me to have internal fighting with, with the board. So I had been with, with Jackson with 15 years, public company, only had one fight, only one time it was not unanimous. And, and that was uh, 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 so a very dark period. And, and I lost control of the company. And, and people would say to me, they say, wow, aren't you upset and depressed? And, and how can you still have a positive attitude? I said, if God said to me, you can take, I can, I can kill your son or I can take your business. What would I pick? I mean, there's lots of worse things that are going to happen than losing your business. If he said, I'd paralyze your son or your daughter, right? I, I mean, take the business, right? It's not that big of a deal. It's not the ultimate worst thing that could happen. There's lots of worse things that could happen. And so started over again, came back. Now I had to, uh, uh, founded Liberty Tax. Had to compete with both block and my own name, my own software, my own system, and yet uh, in it was we. I was even better off because in 12 years we grew to 4,000 offices, top fastest growing in this industry ever, and top 10 in the history of franchising. So it had turned out better for me to have lost that company and start over again. And then along comes uh, the industry change over about a three or four year period, and I had an internal civil war. And uh, uh, so, I, and again, 20 years of, of unanimous decisions of the board of directors and they turned uh, and people turned on me at the end after 20 years. So I've been competing with h and Block for 40 years. I've had two fights, and lost control of both companies. Yeah. So I'm starting all of it all over again. I'm an internal optimist. 
And I think if you're going to be a great CEO, I think you have to be an internal optimist. If you if you have a pessimistic view of the future, then how can you have uh, incredible success? Yeah, and that is an interesting one. And, and indeed, even in the name of your book, you're right, I Compete. You, you, you are by nature, from what I remember reading, uh, highly competitive. Uh, and that uh, even the losing of control of, of your original Jackson Hewitt almost spurred you on to prove the naysayers wrong or to prove that you could produce something even better. Um, th this, this real competitive drive in you obviously has many benefits, upsides. What would those be? And, and then what's the dark side to it, you know, that you notice in yourself that you can, because anything can be over-indexed. The strength of being competitive can be overdone and can become a, a vulnerability. What do you notice about the strength of being highly competitive and then the dark side that you're aware of? You know, in uh, Made in America by Sam Walton, uh, you can only buy it at Walmart stores, but it's a, it's a, a good book. I'm not sure it's great, but it's a good book of, if you want to know history of, of Walmart. Uh, but he said in the, in the prologue, he said, that people ask him, what's the difference between him and everyone else? And he said, the only thing I can think of, he said, is I'm so competitive and I'm so driven and competitive. And uh, I am a fanatical competitor. And, and uh, I'm uh, not a fan of Dennis Rodman. And Dennis Rodman was an obnoxious basketball player. When he, was, he played on the World Championship Detroit Pistons, uh, and he fought in the locker room with his own teammates. He he was fighting on on the uh, on the court all the time with his opponents. He uh, went and played with the Bulls with Michael Jordan, the best player ever, and uh, he got along with Michael Jordan. And some he fought with some of his teammates. But people said, "Well, how did you get along with Michael Jordan?" Um, and he said, "You know what? When he and I are the same in one way, when." We pass over the, onto the court. When we get on the field of battle, we would rather die than lose. We give 200%. Uh, so um, that's how I am. I'm unstoppable. You got to kill me to stop. And uh, that, now that causes its own, uh, so that's positive in that, that it's, uh, it, it enables me to, to accomplish things that almost no one else can top one tenth of one thousandth of one percent right uh, uh, it drives me to huge passionate success what did it say i mean there are some negatives I, I i can't i don't slow down so i don't vacation over two days i trample over people uh you know um, when i left jackson hewitt and started liberty i had to not compete for three years so it took me three years to get back in the, the market, but some of my Jacksonville franchisees were angry that I was competing with them. And, uh, and, and today, now that I've started ATAX, which is our competitor to H&R Block and Jackson Hewitt, some of, some of the, uh, uh, and Liberty, some of the Liberty people are mad at me because the, to them, to them, when I'm, when I'm not in their area, it's 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 just it, it's just business. But once I get in their area and across the street from them, that's the worst possible thing that can happen to anyone in this industry. Is John Hewitt opens across the street yeah. because he's he'd rather die than lose. Yeah, I, I def, def, definitely wouldn't want you as a rival. <laughs> I definitely lose, and I'm competitive. 
competitive and comparative. I think that's a that's almost like the worst combination of the two. I think the psycho the psychiatrist would have a field day to me. No, knowing what you know now, John, age seventy two, if you met your sixteen year old John Hewitt, what would you say to the young John about? Don't worry about this, but do focus on that. What would be the don't worry about? What would be the focus that you'd give your earlier self? I think I think you said the word in there that that the, the key is the key is to focus. Uh, you know um, that that is uh, find find what you like to do, love to do, work hard and and persevere. You know there was a a, a study at at Princeton back in the fifties and so old that that people don't talk about. But what they did is they looked at they looked at a, a graduating class of seniors, and, and let's say there was 100, so easy round number. And they they analyzed the people that went right out and got a job, like with 76, and then the 24 that went and fooled around. They either started a business or they went to Europe for a year, or they went and, and you know they took they took a, a years off. And just they went to, you know, one of them went to Brazil for a year and learned Portuguese and just just walked around, didn't know any Portuguese, not a word, and went to Brazil for a year. And it turns out that 24 that went out and did something and found their found their dream were wealthier 15 years later than all the other 76 combined. So 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 my lesson is to. Uh, again, I got blessed. I got so blessed because my dad tried to call H&R Block and buy that franchise, and I took the course and I loved it. Uh, but look around for look around for your passion. Yeah, it's, it's a really good one, and, and and passion and stories. The thing that struck me is is time and again, whatever age, you still love teaching. Uh, you know, your franchisees uh, lecturing sharing it, but you're a great raconteur. You have, you know, almost like vignettes and stories for everything. Is that something you've always had or did you learn that later on? You know, I'm not sure if it's chicken or egg, but I'm, but I'm, I'm sure of this is that examples teach me, teach me. Uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, I learned, so I, I think it's, I, rather than inventing the example, the examples taught me a lesson. Hmm. So, for example, I was at H&R Block. It's 1977. I'm 28 years old. And I, I learned a valuable, valuable lesson 44 years ago. So H&R Block has a picnic every August for to invite their taxpayers, seasonal taxpayers back to come to school. And uh, to make a long, I'll skip all the other parts about the picnic, but we are in a meeting with 18 district managers. And one guy said in Poughkeepsie, New York, he said, they hate, I don't know, I can't get a picnic. Everyone hates picnics. And so the rest of us were given them ideas. Why don't you have a three-legged race? Or do you throw water balloons? Did you, instead of just writing them, did you call them and invite them and uh, personally? And, and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. I did all that. I did all that. In Poughkeepsie, New York, People, I just can't find people that like picnics. They, for some reason, they don't like picnics. And I was blessed because I went to lunch with him moments later. And he said, first thing he said is, I hate picnics. And so I, I learned an incredible lesson that when people tell you 
that something doesn't work in your area, it's often because of their own biases. So I learn from stories. I learn from anecdotal incidents. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same. Um, and I think every time, just even being in hospital for a number of times, perhaps four times in the last month, I came away with four lessons from being in hospital and about, you know, breathing and coping with pain and the family and the amazing coincidences of the man who operated on me was the man who saved my brother's life when he got attacked by the psychopath. And, uh -oh. and, and I think if, if you always look upon life that you either, I think Nelson Mandela said, you either succeed or you learn something. But even when you succeed, you learn something. And I found, I don't know what stage of my life it came, that once I now think about learning and action, what have I learned? What am I going to do differently? In any situation, the military, we used to call it after action reviews or uh, post-exercise uh, reviews. But every time something happens, get every together. What have you learned? What are we going to do differently? Um, one of the guys who taught me is a, an amazing guy called Marshall Goldsmith, who's a similar age to you, a, a, a Kentuckian who's larger than life like you. And Marshall goes, GDD, what was good? What was difficult? And what would you do differently? And I like that, you know, just always that you think about everything that's happened. What was good? What was difficult? And what would you do differently? Let's go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, John, because you, your life story and your experiences and your uh, the lessons that you teach fit nicely into that. Let's begin with True North. And you're a man with a very strong faith. God is very important in your life and always has been. What are your three foundational values that have stood you in good, in good stead um, through thick and thin as a highly competitive, driven man, but yet also who wants to do the best for people? And I think the word I would were help others. Well, I'm not sure I can limit it to three or get to three. It's somewhere between one and, and 10. Uh, so uh, what the, the most important thing, the most important thing is, is do what you say you're going to do. Mm. If, if, if you do that throughout your life, everyone that does that is going to be successful. And it isn't, you know, because it isn't heights achieved, it's barriers overcome. And uh, so uh, I guess that's the second is overcoming the barriers in your life. You know, my, you know, people look at my success and it's, it's far greater than, than uh, almost all the world. Yet there are people that are as successful as me that have achieved very little. I mean, think of a Helen Keller, right? Blind and deaf and think what she achieved. I mean, that's, that's way bigger achievement than what I've achieved. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's overcoming the obstacles. Every, I've, Jonathan, I've never seen anyone put on earth that hasn't faced obstacles. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a human being that just got to skate through. Now, a lot of people are blessed and have lots of good stuff happen, but everyone has bad stuff happen too. And so the, the winners are the ones that get up and they get up that last time, you know, every time they, they get knocked down. So I guess that's the second one. And the, the third was is integrity. You know, I learned uh, a lesson from some of the best salespeople. Uh, I didn't, I had an epiphany when we sold, um, when we sold Jackson Hewitt for uh, after I left. And the guy that sold it was an incredible salesperson. 
And I, it wasn't until then that I learned what made a great salesperson. And that is that he, uh, he just painted a, a, a view of the future that was so fantastic and he was able to settle that. Now, at the same time, this guy never did what he said he was going to do, right? He, but he, he kind of, I mean, he convinced everyone and each day of his life that, that he would tell a story about six months ahead or a year ahead. I remember at the first convention after I stepped down as CEO and he said, he contradicted himself in the same, in the same speech and got a standing ovation both times. I mean, so it, it's uh, he's remarkable at, at painting the future. And so you have to have integrity. If, you know, I am fanatical about once, if I say I'm going to do something, then I'm like incredibly stressed out if I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like a, like a, like a, like a, a missile on target, locked on. Exactly. You're exactly. going to do it or you're going to blow up. That's great, John. The second of the eight is PQ, meaning and purpose. What, you know, people call it Dharma, calling, vocation. What, why do you do what, what you've done, John? What, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Is it, is it about, you know, with a mathematician background and a, a great instinct for numbers, is it about being the best and doing more than anybody else and growth and numbers? What, what is it that gives your life meaning and purpose? Um. I've, I've always been a giver and, and I try every, in every relation to give more than I receive. And that's one thing I wrote in my letter to my parents that um, I've pr been pretty good. If not, if not total, I'm close to hundred percent about everyone I meet uh, that doing more for them than they do for me, even if it's just buying them lunch or something. I'm, I'm uh, so, so I'm a, a giving person. I wrote each of my parents, although I can never catch up to you, either one of you, right? I could never catch up to my parents. But, and, and as a result of that, it's helping people, changing lives. I mean, that is so, so incredibly rewarding. I've made the world a better place and a better place for thousands and tens of thousands of people. I mean, that is, and, and you know, each day, uh, I'll get a, a note. I mean, it could be a 10 word note or email or text or someone from sometimes years past 30 years ago that says, you know, you changed my life. And, and uh, you know, I really appreciate that. And it's, it's just so rewarding. I, I don't know what's there. There's not too much that can be better than changing an individual's life. And I've done it thousands of times. Yeah. And I was reminded of a similar theme with my, not only was my father a hero, but my brother Graham, the, the plastic surgeon, uh, is as well, but he just doesn't acknowledge it. Uh, he's so modest about it. But when I was ill in hospital, um, a lady very kindly, Karen was her name, brought me my lunch and I thanked her and got in a conversation. And she said, I've known your brother Graham, the surgeon, for 25 years. Really? He said, yeah, I remember when he brought in his children when there were tiny little things and they came into the restaurant and they had lunch and he would make sure it wouldn't prompt them too much. They knew manners, but they all four of them came over to see us in the kitchen. We, we were just kitchen staff, she said, but that's another story. And, and they thanked us for the lunch and going to the trouble of serving them. Nobody else had done that, but they did. And she said, and the second thing 
that I'll never forget about him and how it changed my friend's life is my friend Margaret is a cleaner. And when Graham met her in the corridor one day, he said, hello, I'm Graham. What's your name? And she said, I'm Margaret. And he said, what do you do? She said, oh, I'm just a cleaner in the hospital. And he said, never say that again, that you're just a cleaner. You are a cleaner and you're part of the team in the hospital. And you stop people getting superbugs through illness and lack of cleanliness, like MRSA, which could kill people. So you do a crucial job. She never forgot that. And the lady told me that 25 years later. And I think in your book, I Compete, the, the impact that you've had on franchisees and other people, they won't forget that. Of course, there'll be the people you've competed with who feel sore and they won't forget that either. But that's part of the journey. You can't please all people all the time. If we go into the third area, health quotient, John, I'm conscious that with the drive and and all the inspiring leaders and very driven, successful leaders, generals, SAS, special forces guys, there is this obsession about us. We're almost like over-anxious, over-achievers. And with it, there's a cost. Everything in life is possible if you're prepared to pay the price and live with the consequences. What has been the price on your health and well-being, mental and physical, of the determination and drive that you've had? Or have you managed to get your health mentally and physically just perfect? Because I don't imagine you have. Very few of them have. What, what's been the learning you've had about what you've had to compromise on and the impact it's had on you of this dedication and commitment? I've uh, been incredibly healthy. So if you just talk about health, incredibly healthy. I didn't have a health problem until, until I turned 70 and then I had uh, a couple right in one month, just like you did four in a month. I had two in one month, but in my whole life, just just one month, bad month, right? And so I've been incredibly healthy. Now, as far as the how it affected my health, I guess it would. It's it affects my health in relationships, even with my children, because I'm so fanatical on the the field of battle that I'm I don't. I don't regret this or feel bad for it, or, but um, some of our quality time is dragging them to business meals. You know, I eat out every, every dinner, every lunch, every breakfast. I've never, I don't know how to cook. I've never, not only am I turned on my stove, I've never turned on a burner on my stove. So there's nothing in my refrigerator. So I take my kids out all the time. So when I see them um, and, and there's no, there's not a date, I'm 365. Because every single person in my family uh, owns stock or has, is an employee or a franchisee or all of the above. And so if I haven't seen them in a year and we go to Thanksgiving, it's my sister in, in New Jersey, then we're talking about, they're asking me questions because, and, and I'm just horrible at chit-chat. I'm just horrible at chit-chat. I'm, I'm the worst mingler at a party you ever seen. <laughs> I don't want to stand around and talk. And, and I'm an introvert. And I, I, um, all, I meet thousands of people every year, new people. And so I, I guess I, I strive to be by myself. I mean, if, if it wasn't for competing, I would be a loner. I would be a mountain man. I would be uh, Jeremiah, whatever the name of that uh, movie was, Jeremiah Johnson. He was a mountain man. He went out for a year at a time or six months at a time. I would be a mountain man if it wasn't for 
uh, needing to compete. Yeah, that, that is a, a, an amazing story. And of course, with that comes a cost of people who want to spend time with you chit-chatting, but it's always business and you don't take long holidays, more than a couple of days. And, and it's, I think it's the competitive side of you. If I remember, you were also a very competitive sportsman that's probably kept your health and well-being because you always kept yourself very fit. Am I right? Yeah. I, yes, I uh, uh, tennis player. Yeah. Uh, so I, when I was young and before I was 16, I played all sports. So I played basketball, and football, and, and baseball, and soccer, and uh, even wrestled one one year. And then I picked up uh, uh, tennis when I when I was between my sophomore and junior year, and I became really good at, at tennis. And so uh, for a while, I did both tennis and basketball, and then for 50 years, just all tennis. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's this. If you hadn't had that sporting side to you and you'd worked all the hours and eaten out every three meals a day, then you would probably be with lots of health uh, problems. But I think that's that's been the, the guiding light that saved you. On to EQ. Um, it, it's very interesting. You mentioned about the introversion. A lot of the leaders I know are introverted or they become extroverted introverts. They they learn how to connect with people. But when they want to recharge their batteries, they need to be almost in their mountain man moment on their own. What's a tip you'd give people about building rapport and trust and a connection with people? Because, you know, 5,000 franchisees, that's a lot of people to connect with. How, uh, what would be the, the skill you've learned on emotional intelligence? You know, um, I saw Nick Saban, probably the greatest football coach ever the current football coach of Alabama. Uh, I was on Facebook, uh, you know, the, the, or YouTube, one of those stories. He, he said uh, he, was, he was preaching to his uh, students, his athletes. And he said, um, how, many, how many miles do I have? And they said, one. And I said, how many years do I have? And they said, two. And he said, that's my dad, Tom. He said that you have twice as many ears as you do mouths. You need to spend two thirds of your time listening and you don't. And he said, you don't learn anything while you're talking. So the number one, the way that I uh, have, have uh, got people to believe in me and follow me and work with me uh, is that I listen to them. I listen to each and every person. And, uh, and so, and plus I always want what's best for each person. If, if I'm interviewing you, Jonathan, and you're thinking about, um, or let's say you're a franchisee and you're thinking about selling and going on, I just want what's best for you. I mean, whatever's best for you. And what's best for me, too? Well, that's wonderful. But if it's best for you, that's all that matters to me. I never try to get someone to change their mind once they, unless they're going in a, a horrible direction, uh, like drugs or something. But um, if, if someone's just making a business decision and they're not going to join me, God bless. Yeah, no, very, very wise. Uh, listen twice as much as speaking. And as you say, uh, when you're talking, you're learning nothing new because it's, it's an echo chamber or an ego chamber, as people say. It's just about you talking about you. That's uh, so true. From emotional intelligence to cultural intelligence questions, CQ, about diversity, equality, inclusion, learning about people who are different from you. Uh, without making them wrong. What would be your tip about diversity, equality, and inclusion or what you've learned over the years? 
the, the number one thing I, I learned, and I think this uh, came uh, from Peter Drucker. If, if we both agree all the time, one of us is useless. <laughs> and I tell, and I always follow that up by saying that I pick you to be useless. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I think that that uh, I, what I learned a long time ago is the problem with delegating. One of the problems with delegating is that it's easy to tell someone what's what to do, right? Go do this, right? But which the real secret is telling them what needs to be accomplished, and then give them advice on how to do that if they need advice. But um, the two of us thinking, uh, the two of us, if you and I disagree and we're two um, halfway intelligent people, then the answer is never in, you're never going to be 100% right and I'm never going to be 100% right. There's learning in every single opportunity. You know, one of my uh, favorite stories with my marketing chief marketing officer, she's been with me for, for 33 years. Wow. Uh, we were with we were with Jackson Hewitt and, and uh, it was uh, a franchisee um, sent a, a scathing two-page email that sh- that uh, on April 15th was a Saturday, so tax season really ended on Monday. But the TV station came and, and uh, or, or said, called him up and said, we're coming to do a story on you. And he said he called up the department at headquarters. No one was there. Um, and so he just was blasting, blasting her that uh, we, didn't, we didn't help him with that TV interview. And so um, she, her reaction was very defensive, right? That, oh, we were all out. It's April 15th. We're all out in the field working. And he's the worst, like the worst franchisee ever. He doesn't do anything right. He's, he's a horrible franchisee. And I said, no, no, you need to learn from this. I mean, think about it. What, what, what did we learn from this? That um, there are TV stations that's going to call hundreds of our offices on April 15th. Right. And so in our training, we need to have a training session on what to do when the TV comes, when, when the TV is coming. And then I said, we need to have it in the operating room, what to do when the TV is coming. And then we need to make sure every April or, or the toll taxes, we remind our franchisees that this is if the TV comes, here's here's where to get it. He improved our system. This possible worst franchisee ever. The, the most egregious, low-performing franchisee ever made our system better. So yeah, you can yeah. learn. You can learn from the the most the, anyone. You can learn from anyone. Yeah, uh, which is, takes us nicely, John, on to adversity and resilience, RQ, uh, and and how you know you you came back from adversity there with that situation, teaching her how to learn from it. But what would be your top tip about resilience? And, you know, you've had many times you've had a good kicking. Uh, you've picked yourself back up. And you've been even more determined to learn from it and improve and beat the people who gave you a kicking. Um, what would be your top tip on resilience? Um, one, of, one of my um, uh, f- friend's friend told me a long time ago, a- after I lost... Jackson knew it. She read this somewhere and said, the best revenge is massive success. Mm. And I'm, I'm blessed that I don't hate anyone. I dislike lots of people, but I, I, I do not hate anyone. And uh, I'm, I'm all about succeeding and helping 
helping my team and others succeed. And so um, it's it's uh, incredibly motivating. And I don't try to get even with anyone. I try to I try to succeed, and that and that that's more uh, hurtful to, to some of them than than any if I did try to do something. When you when you try to get revenge with another person, you're just hurting yourself, right? Uh, if uh, you hate someone, you're just hurting yourself. Well, I, there's that lovely quote. I, I'm sure it's the Stoics, and I get the sense that much of your your faith, anyway, has a Stoic undertone. Um, but the, the description of, of trying to do that is like taking rat poison yourself and hoping it'll kill the other person because <laughs> it, it sort of eats right. you up. Uh, right. and, and it doesn't. I remember I worked for a, a psychopathic general as, who was a boss and a very unpleasant character. And I wrote a long tirade about how unfair he was and what an unpleasant character he was and gave it to my mother. And she went, yes, dear. Very interesting. Having read about four pages of my sort of 400 pages said now burn it because he doesn't know a thing about all your grievances and all your little petty worries um so he is completely oblivious but it's eating you up so burn it and move on and i thought great advice from my mother last of the uh, inspiring leadership uh, eight principles is legacy question lq john sadly the day will come the only certainty we can guarantee each other you and i will die when you do die, what would you like your legacy to be? Thanks, thanks for including yourself in that <laughs> we can both die instead of saying you can die. That's a nice way to say it. <laughs> I, I, I use always use the proverbial hit by a bus in case you get hit by a bus. People say people say that always it'll be, say in it'll case, be an electric case, bus. It'll be an electric bus anyway. Right. <laughs> people say in case something happens to you, right? They don't say in case you die, right? They're they're not somehow they, they can't say it um, that I guess it's um, part of it is it, when my when my son turned turned 10 I said how does it feel to be in double digits and he said good and he said it's a long time before I'm going to be in triple digits and remember I he, he, I was 61 years old when he said this and he said uh, I said how long is it you know, always in a teaching mode. And he said, 90 years. I said, good. I said, well, the good, the, the good news or bad, bad news, son, is I'm not going to be alive when you turn 100. But as long as, as long as you remember me, I'm going to be alive. And so um, it, it, um, it's two things. One is um, changing lives and having, having people for decades and decades and and maybe 90 years, uh, remembering me uh, with with uh, gratefulness. Mm. I, I love that. As long as you remember me, I will be alive. Uh, and I do think of that, you know, my late brother, David, who died a couple of months ago, I, I still remember him and he's alive to me now. And I, I learned such a lot from him. So thank you. That, that is quite profound. Um, last few questions, uh, John. Executive teams, you, you've formed many teams. Um, and you've probably inherited some toxic teams or some toxic individuals um, and had to turn it around to be high performing. Or you've had franchises which are a bit toxic and you perhaps help them get healthy. Um, what would be your top tip about turning around a toxic team into a high performing team? 
Uh, fortunately, I haven't uh, haven't faced that off the. Um, I'll, I'll say it this way: that Thomas Watson Sr., um, one of the founders of IBM, said, "Give me a hundred great attitude people with great attitude, or give me a hundred great engineers." And you know what? I'm going to take the people hundred people with great attitude because you can teach engineering, you can't teach attitude. And Jonathan, I've been singularly unsuccessful at changing anyone's attitude. I mean, what I've learned is you, you can, every optimist will have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. And every pessimist will have a good day, a good week, a good month, a good year. But at the end of the day, they pop back into being an optimist or a pessimist. And I've, I've spent, um, tried with numerous, too many people, I've tried to change their attitude. Just I should have learned I should have learned um, sooner in that. So what, what I believe is, is you hire for attitude and not for, not for skill set. And so uh, the, the thing we look for when we hire someone is what's their attitude? Are they going to fit in? And so if, if I hire an executive, I have not spend extensive time with each one of my team and each one of my team gets to the side. I mean, they have, it has to be unanimous. This person's going to fit in. But even after, even after that, even after doing all that, we're not always right. I mean, you know, the best, the best performance people put on is during their interview. I mean, every person you talk, every person is an actor, an incredible salesperson on one time in their life when they do their interview. I've never seen anyone that ever lived up to their interview, right? I mean, their interviews, it's like, it's like the ultimate first day, right? That when, when you're there on it interview they're they're perfect and they're wonderful and they uh some of the people say when i say what are your weaknesses and they say well i can't think of it i say well that's one of your weaknesses if if you can't determine your weakness because peter drucker said people with great strength have great weakness so so i would say that the two things is you're never gonna change a toxic person get rid of them as quickly as you can but hire hire to avoid that mistake don't hire the person with the best skill hire the person with the best attitude yeah i so agree with that and john in, in light of what you've just said what would you say are your top two strengths and what are your top two weaknesses my top two strengths well um certainly uh one of them is is my drive mm -hmm. and i guess what I've the key characteristics of a great leader uh, of an exceptional leader, I think, is this: that you have to um, you have to be able to convince. You have to have a a, a vision, fairly accurate vision of the, of a good future, and then you have to get everyone to buy into. You get your stockholders, your family your investors, your, your vendors, your everyone and everyone involved. If you can get, you know, I used to be offended by people that would say uh, when, when people were successful, you know, you know, I've helped create a thousand millionaires and people would look at them and say, oh yeah, they drank the Kool-Aid. And to me, I was offended by that until I had an epiphany. Well, the, the way you're successful is you follow a system. And so they had, you're guilty of not following the system and not drinking the Kool-Aid. So, um, yeah, I think that's the second thing is I've, I've been persuasive 
And I've been accurate in my vision of the future and persuasive of getting everyone to buy in. Um, one of my biggest weaknesses is I'm too loyal. And uh, it, the, the weakness that causes is uh, I'll, I'll put up with that toxic person too long or I'll, uh, I'll keep an employee too long and it costs money and it costs um, some morale and, and uh, uh, with, with, with other, other people in the organization. Yeah. And uh, also, I guess the second thing is I'm brutally frank in almost every situation. Yeah. You know, you and I have only talked for a couple hours and I haven't found any, any advice I can give you yet. But even though you didn't see my advice, if I found something that, that I thought you could approve of, I would feel compelled to tell you, even though I barely know you. So and I, I, guess, and I would be compelled to listen. I would be compelled to listen. Well, you should. I yeah, mean, I will. If, you know, it's so, well, I have nothing to, to say. Or, so don't think I have anything. But it's so difficult to improve when no one criticizes you. Yeah. And, and I'm one of the most criticized people on the planet. Can you imagine 5,000 franchisees? There isn't one of them that hasn't complained about me either incessantly or once in a while. I mean, and they had hundreds of thousands of employees. So I'm, I'm criticized, but you know, you have to learn like Martha didn't learn to embrace criticism when that guy criticized her about, about not being open on April 15th and the TV. You have to, I embrace criticism. You have to embrace criticism. It's so much easier to improve. It, it, so, so true. Love that one. And, and then we're down to the final two questions, which is uh, one about reading and, and books that you've read. And then I, I'd like you to introduce yourself once again and give your two minute top tip at the very end, because that stands on its own. But John, it, it sounds like you've been massively busy. So I, I don't know whether you've ever had time to read much uh, or listen to audio books or recorded. Tell us, have you had time? And, and if so, what are a couple of great books that you'd recommend on leadership that you think people should listen to or read? You know, when I was a uh, child, I read voraciously, voraciously. And I was a science fiction fan. I was a science fiction fan and, until it changed. I, I love that when the aliens attack, I hate, I hate the witchcraft and the, and the vampires and all the magical stuff i i gave it up on when when that happened i mean i i watch harry potter but not with not with great fondness i mean i prefer star trek or star wars and i like fighting and aliens and battles so and then and then um uh, i read things like uh, war and peace and and gone with the wind and huge huge books and so i read voraciously and when when i first got in business i would read about a uh, uh, a book a week, and I would alternate between a fiction book and a, uh, and I like mysteries, and uh, I gave up science fiction when I was a kid because it, it just turned dramatically to all the witches and warlocks and stuff like that. That's not me. I'm not even sure I would call that science fiction, but um, so, and but as in my first few years, in my first 20, 25 years of business, I would read a business book every other week. And so, um, and, and with my franchisees, I would, I publish, we publish uh, a book list that, that we recommend. So, and it's a, it's an ever-changing book list. It's about 25 books. Some of them are always there. 
and I'll, I'll tell you my, my favorites in a, in a minute, but some are changing. Uh, I had a greatest experience uh, about 15 years ago. One of my, because I published this, my franchisees send me their suggestion, right? Oh, have you read this? And so someone said, um, have you ever read Colin Powell's uh, PowerPoint? And I said, no, it said, but send it to me. Now I had, I look, I thought about that. I said, well, not a, how's an entrepreneur, a, a guy that thinks he's a consummate entrepreneur, going to lose from a government employee and an army general? How am I going to learn anything about entrepreneurship? It was so great, though. It was phenomenal. It was so great. We used to that at our uh, management retreat that year. And the number one lesson I learned from, from that one is he said, in one of his PowerPoints, he said that you never... You never can afford to wait until you have 100% of the information to make a decision. He said, um, it's too late. And so he has said, you have to get about four, somewhere between 40 and 70% of the information, then use your experience and your uh, your intellect and, and pull the trigger, make a decision. And I had never seen that in writing anywhere, anyhow, anytime. And here's an army general teaching me how to be an entrepreneur. So uh, yeah, that's it. So, um, yeah, I've, I've read voraciously on, yeah. on business. Uh, the, the, my two favorites are authors, uh, Peter Drucker and uh, Dale Carnegie. Yeah. And, and, and uh, although I've virtually every book I read, I learned at least one thing, one small thing, and at least one or two things. Um, they are, I agree with everything they write. Yeah, I, I love Dale Carnegie and also Drucker when I did my MBA, I listened to that. And my um, ex-father-in-law lived next door to General Colin Powell and they went and had sort of afternoon tea while they're all sitting upstairs in their room. And he was just a profound guy, even as a, a, as a brigadier uh, in the American army in Fort Leavenworth. So that's a small world. Mm -hmm. So John, um, thank you. This has been really good. Let's um, end with... If you just introduce yourself again and what you do now uh, and then give them their two minute top tip, we'll end there. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for all this time. Uh, I'm John Hewitt. I'm uh, the founder of uh, four companies. One is QTAX. We developed tax software back in, the, in 1981. Then we founded uh, Jackson Hewitt. And then we founded Liberty Tax and now Loyalty Brands. And Loyalty Brands has 10 brands, and we're looking at adding more. Uh, so we're a franchisor of franchise work. Uh, my, my advice, and I alluded to this a, a little bit earlier, but it starts with the 10 most important two-letter words. If it is to be, it is up to me. God gave us all talents, and all of us have a place that we can be extraordinary. Find that place. Um, I, I think I invented this simple phrase, TGIM. Thank God it's Monday. And, and it's so simple. But it, my philosophy, Jonathan, is if, if you are headed to work on Monday morning and not looking forward to it, you're going to the wrong place. Find, it, find your place. John, brilliant and profound and very focused as you are. I've really enjoyed our session today. You are indeed an inspired leader. You've achieved an awful lot and you still continue to achieve a lot. So thank you for inspiring so many people, for helping so many people. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you.
So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.